recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. Yeah, this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. Let it breathe. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. Yeah, yeah. To all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Shake it, shake it. It was all a dream. I used to read Book Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. We got an extremely, extremely special, special, special guest here in the house. One would almost say a VIP, but I don't want to gas his head up. It's already gas. <laughs> so, he is a New Yorker, but he ain't from Brooklyn. He from Queens. Yet, he chose this song right here. Why'd you do that, Larry? I am from Brooklyn. <laughs> and from Queens. That's the truth. Um, to me, this is this is a this is a great soundtrack. It's about ambition. It's about community. It's about gratitude. It's about redemption. There's a sense of optimism. You, you're you're on the dawn of a new era. Uh, it's about growth and and new friends. It's about Brooklyn. And it's, it's about world-class iconicism. So that's where my head is at right now. All right. So you said you are from Brooklyn. I rep Brooklyn. I rep Queens. A lot of New Yorkers want to put me in a box. A lot of people want to put me in a box. This is just a small reflection of my rejection of boxes. Okay. So I've always lived in Queens. Okay. And my mom worked in Brooklyn Hospital in Fort Greene and it was convenient for her to have us go to school in Brooklyn where she worked so we would spend our days in Brooklyn so K through 8 I went to school in Brooklyn and after school I would either run around Brooklyn or go to Crown Heights where my grandmother was and so I spent my waking hours in Brooklyn. All my friends were in Brooklyn. I knew Brooklyn better than I did Queens, but I laid my head in Queens. I spent mo- most of my time in Fort Greene. Shout out to PS20. Okay. Shout out to 113. And uh, Fort Greene is uh, the Brooklyn Technical. Yeah, Brooklyn Tech is Brooklyn Tech. yeah is right there. Across the street from Brooklyn Hospital where my mom worked. My brothers went to Tech. My uncle went to Tech. So yeah, I mean that's that's where that's where my sort of epicenter was in Fort Greene. All right, and you said it was K through eight. eight. Okay, yeah. so in ninth grade high school, where'd you go? I was recruited by a program, uh, the Albert G. Oliver program. Okay, what's that? Albert G. Oliver program is a program that tries to create better opportunities for high potential urban youth, and so. 
I was recruited by that program. I, I mean, recruited. I got in. So you applied. Yeah, it was it was applied. I got a funny story about the application because that's that's another thing. Right. Got in and ended up going to a boarding school in Connecticut, Hotchkiss. Shout out to Lakeville. But the funny story, and this is like you know the intervention, right? You think about the some of those moments in your life when, if not for that moment, things could have ended very differently. So when they were giving out applications to the Albert G. Oliver program. I was not on that list. I was always a smart kid. I had somewhat of a behavioral issue. Had, might be generous. And the principal didn't give me an application. And so my mom, God bless her. Yeah. um, Understood what that omission meant and went and had a talk with the principal. And in order to get this crazy lady out of her face, she gave me an application and the rest is history. No doubt. So that's, that's, that is the. Shout to moms. Shout, shout to, to moms, moms doing their job. That's parenting right there. Yeah. I mean, that's advocacy. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's real. I remember uh, <laughs> there was an interview when I, I felt real good after it. It was, it was a group setting and we were talking about leadership. Okay. And the woman asked, she said, so tell me about, you know, what some of the leaders in the community can do about some of the negativity. And I and I made the point that a lot of the negativity were be, was being perpetrated by leaders. Ooh. And I, these people have a different type of leadership energy. But let's be clear, like these thugs on the street who are like building teams are leaders. <laughs> and then everybody started commenting on that. I was like, yes, I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was some, that was a good insight. How many people in your school, or much less New York, today accept for this Albert G. Oliver program? Back when I did the program, it was maybe three of us from my junior high school, and the class is maybe ninety. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. And did everybody that was accepted into the program ultimately go? Uh, no, actually, it's funny you should ask that. I remember there was a dude I went to school with and he decided to go to tech instead of one of these boarding schools. And listen, you can go to tech and be very successful. I mean, Brooklyn Tech is one of the three preeminent science high schools that you have to test into. So Brooklyn Tech is not a shabby school. It's Brooklyn, Bronx, and Stuyvesant, And Stuyvesant, yes. But I think some of these boarding schools are on another level, frankly. Mm Mm-hmm. It takes you out of the element and just like really is, is it would you say it's an immersive experience in the sense I mean for sure boarding school is by definition yeah. but even even if you are going to day school that is an immersive experience yeah. and just the, the you go to boarding school you understand the opportunity divide like you understand that a little bit better than maybe you did if you didn't go to boarding school in the sense of your classmates yeah, in the sense of how people with resources access opportunity and use each other to access opportunity, like it's a different it's a different level. Hodgkiss is the name of the school that you went to, and it's in Connecticut, right? Yes. All right, tell me about it. I thrived. I always tell people that if I went to Hodgkiss three years later, I would have had more presumptions about the world and about my place in it as a black boy 
and I probably would have been less successful. But because I was so young and so open, and maybe I'm not giving myself the benefit of the doubt because I am just an open person. Um, I went, I was 14 years old. I was a kid. I was the only black male in my class. Mm. And I just soaked it up. I soaked it up and I was nurtured at Hotchkiss. I was, you know, and I ended up having, I always tell people high school was the pinnacle of my career. I mean, in terms of my resume, like my high school accolades, accomplishments, like I thrived crazy. When I when I went to Hotchkiss, I was 14 years old. I was I was 214 pounds. I came back from a family vacation. I must have gained 10 pounds. All I did was eat. They used to call me Larry Gainsweight. <laughs> That's clever. That's clever, yeah, right? That's clever, yeah. That's clever. Um, and then I started wrestling. And you know, that was when I realized, yeah, not only did I, you know, I lost a little weight, and then I was like, oh, so now I got a little physique. I started playing football. Um, student leadership was big. Shout out to Mr. Birchfield. And this is part of the nurturing experience of boarding school. One day I was in the Harris house, which is sort of a, you know, a place on campus that is sort of in the admissions area. And I was walking through and Mr. Birchfield stopped me and he said, have you ever thought about running for student office? And I said, no, he said, you should. And that was as a freshman. I was the only black male, right? Mm -hmm. So for him to see something in me, and that went to sophomore class president, co-president, junior class co-president, student body president. I was on the disciplinary committee. You know, I was a captain of two sports, varsity sports. Um, I received a number of community awards. Like when I tell you my resume in high school, like it was, I had nowhere to go but down, man. <laughs> so, but so, so that was when I was, I was nominated by my school. So basically, so the Moorhead, uh, now Moorhead Kane, mm -hmm. is the oldest undergraduate merit scholarship in the nation. It's found, it's um, modeled after the roads. And it's to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is the oldest public institution of higher learning, if you don't know. And at the time, you had to go to one of the nominating schools to be nominated for the scholarship. And the nominating schools were all of the you know boarding schools, basically the best schools in the country. They, there were some public schools. Um, they since have done a fantastic job of democratizing access. And so now you can basically be, you come from any school, you can get pulled out of the general admissions pool. I think they realized that there was an elitist aspect to that. So, so, but yeah, man, I'm, being the product of affirmative action, going to this elite boarding school, thriving, and then being their chosen single nominee for this scholarship which is the biggest deal. And they only nominate one person. One person. And it's from all the schools, and then one person gets the Moorhead Scholarship. No, so so 
every school had at, at my time a single nominee now i think a school can nominate more than one person people can p be pulled out of the general pool so it's it's much more dynamic in terms of where the talent is coming from okay. um but back in the day you had all of these nominating schools had one so what they were saying was and maybe i'm hyping it up because i was you know what i'm saying <laughs> No, what I think this, this, this what I think they were saying was this is our candidate mm -hmm. and I was their candidate all right and by being nominated you automatically got it or no. was there still another process after no that? you had to get the scholarship you had to, nomination was a nomination so how many people did they select at the time um I think there were maybe 50 some odd scholars okay so oh oh 50 total 50 total that went to UNC that got the scholarship, scholarship. okay gotcha yeah. And out of a pool, how many? It's, it's a good question. Mm -hmm. I, I got to guess it was low single digits acceptance rate. Gotcha. Like like a competitive college would be. But you have to understand these are kids who are the chosen ones from their oh, school. school. And then yeah. it's No, I understand. It's like you a first-round draft pick. At the time. Yeah. And so you went to UNC for that. I went to UNC. All right. And, uh, Shout out to Carolina. Yeah, tell us about that. So I always tell people every four years was culture shock for me. And so going to boarding school was culture shock. And I can tell you that going from a New England boarding school, elite boarding school to um, a large public school in the South was, was culture shock again. Um, but that transition was, I would say, softened by having my brother there. So my brother, who went to Tech, um, two years older than me, uh, was at Carolina already. Okay. And um, they used to call me Baby Braith <laughs> because Tone was there. And Tone, Tone made my transition real easy. But I also love people. So Maybe. culturally, it was, it was, you know, a different look. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had to learn how to percolate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had to learn about sweet tea. I had to learn about the pit preacher. Okay. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always say that the versatility that I have in terms of people is part of is derived from the process of continually being uncomfortable and put in new situations in Carolina was that. And Carolina became home, no you know, so so now, you know, I kind of feel like anywhere I go is home because I, I can relate to, you know, are you a Republican, conservative, elite boarding school type from New England mm -hmm. or are you down south? Yeah, you still might be a conservative Republican, but, you know, yeah, just it's a different, different walk though. of life. Yeah, different walk of life. Before we continue, you brought up your brother twice already Uh is there anything you want to say about like your brother is like outside of, you know, when you were walking to class and him being at UNC, um, what else have you uh, taken from your brother or how else has your brother had an influence on your life? So big tone, I have two brothers. One is closer in age mm -hmm. and we went to college together. So there's, a you know, maybe more stories direct, but, but I'm going to talk about big tone who is, he, he's a role model. He's generous. He is very hardworking. He's very successful. He's he's a family man. 
He's not the most modest dude, but neither am I. That's the, the family. That's the Braithwaite trait. Um, he's my biggest benefactor. Literally, he's my biggest investor. And I love him. He's a he's a great dude, you know? And he's always making moves. I'm so proud of him. He's he's built a fantastic business. What's his business? Uh, he's a dentist. Okay. And, you know, he's the type of dude, you know, so this is the West Indian grind, right? So the day Tone graduated from residency, he opened his doors. I bet. So he was moonlighting heavy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this this is the side hustle, you know, and we and we get it from, from my mom. Okay. Uh, my dad's a laid back dude. My dad's the rock. Mom's the rock. Everybody has their role, but my mom is the hustler. My mom is the tireless one. My dad's steady hand, I think, was was great for all of us, you know. And my and and my dad was a provider, you know. And I think certainly shaped my understanding of manhood. You know, you're a West Indian dude, like that's like you're a provider. That's what and Folks might give me grief. I might be old fashioned. I'm not saying I don't want wifey to make money. <laughs> she can provide too. But I know where the buck stops. At least that's how I feel. That's what I've seen. But I would say even that, you know, and this is not caveman stuff. My notion of masculinity is dynamic. You know, I'm a very emotive person. You know, I don't buy into nonsense. I think there's a lot of nonsense out there. So, you know. I just have a great, a great, great family. All right. So as part of this uh, Moorhead scholarship, yeah. uh, you were required to do, I think, four internships. Yeah. So it's called the Summer Enrichment Program. Okay. Apologies. And so there are four summers starting before you matriculate. The first is an outdoor leadership experience. The second is a public service experience. The third is is an enterprise work experience. And the last is a travel study unstructured go somewhere learn something so briefly let's go over all of them she said outdoor leadership what was that so i went to Vail, colorado and did 23 days of mountaineering okay. including three days of a solo this is the outward bound course so the solo is when you basically have a, a bag of peanuts and m&ms and you spend three days no contact with other people so you basically have like call it an acre you write yourself a letter. I have a, I have that letter to this day, and that letter was actually pretty prophetic in terms of the way that I wanted to spend my life. It seems like there's a, kind of like with a marathon, there's the physical side of it, but most people who run it say it's the mental, you know? And so I'm wondering, for that experience, do you feel that you got just as much or maybe even more from the mental? I mean, you wrote a letter to yourself that means something well, yeah. to you today. So they have this exercise where during your solo, you write yourself a letter and they mail it to you in six months. Okay. And, you know, when you're fasting, by definition, because they don't give you a whole lot of food. Yeah. And you're alone. You know, it's a very sort of Buddhist type of Zen. Like, what's your life about? Where you headed? So public service. What was that? Uh, Public service. So I went to Hong Kong and taught English in an English immersion course to local Chinese kids. All right. Obviously, Cantonese not required. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Hong Kong was ill because you had this British influence 
you know, obviously as an English speaker, you can get around pretty well. But it was just cultural collision. And I believe you also went to Zimbabwe for something, a part of that, right? Yeah, so we we were part of a, a Moorhead program or a program founded by Moorheads that was funding the secondary education of local Zimbabwean students. And this was around the time when there was some political turmoil. And so the, the foundation had to reconsider the trip. And so we went the following year on a privately funded campaign. So what began as a Moorhead experience ended as sort of a private experience. But I, I certainly credit the foundation for that experience. Okay. And so that actually happened the next year. And so I went to Puerto Rico when I did my enterprise summer. I worked for Puerto Rico's first economic development think tank. Shout to Mike Soto. It's called El Centro para Nuevo Economía, Center for the New Economy. And I did a lot of policy writing and, and research. I would draft these policy papers. They would love it and like publish it. <laughs> they were like, yo, you can write. But yeah, they were doing stuff, you know, about, you know, it's funny because we talk about like, you know, basic needs. They were doing stuff about like internet access and bridging the d- digital divide and opportunity expansion and economic access and stuff like that. All right. So in your travel experience, did that, did the the previous three, you said uh, Colorado, Hong Kong, Puerto Rico, did those yeah. influence where you, ch- did you get a chance to choose where you wanted to go or? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. yeah. So my last Moorhead summer was I spent time doing uh, work with a community development financial institution, Shout to Self Help, um, in Durham, and they were a nonprofit lender to women-owned minority businesses, a community development lender, and spent a little bit of time studying microfinance in Peru and sort of understanding the different applications of these entrepreneurial solutions, and my degree. In public policy, so in public policy, you specialize. And my degree was crafted through a lot of this sort of customized independent study work that I had done. And the degree is uh, with a specialization in entrepreneurial solutions to community development. And one of my professors, shout to Jim Johnson, UNC Chapel Hill, put me on to at the time what was groundbreaking it was called the double bottom line they've since moved on to the triple bottom line but the double bottom line is well the bottom line first of all in a classic sense is profit in a corporate sense and there was this movement around the double bottom line which was profit and social profit right so Achieving mission-oriented ends by leveraging business systems. And that ultimately became social enterprise. So, but this was like the precursor. So social enterprise by definition is a is a sort of double bottom line type of enterprise. Do good and do well. And now we are on to the triple bottom line, which is do good, do well, and also do right by the environment. When I was in school, it was it was the double bottom line. So that's what I began to learn about folks like Magic Johnson. You know, and Canyon Partners. So Magic Johnson, I said, wait a second. Magic, and this is like, this was magic to me. Magic makes hundreds of millions of dollars by investing in the hood. 
improves the quality of life for people who are in the hood and again and gets a people's choice award i was like that sounds great so to me there was no trade-off and so what i learned was you know was that there was this creative application of business to achieve social ends in a sustainable way that was attractive to me and the pathway was you first have to understand finance. Like it wasn't that do-gooders that moved to finance. It was the finance, the hard skill people moved into the social space. And so, you know, leaving school, I knew that I had to get my my card punched and didn't even think about, okay, well, what does entrepreneur solutions development mean? It, it don't mean much if you don't know nothing about entrepreneurship or business. So I got into a program called the Junior Summer Institute as a junior to the Woodrow Wilson School in uh, Princeton. And so this was a summer where talented minority students would do intensive statistics and economics. And, but that threw my Moorhead summer off. So I basically deferred my last summer until after I graduated. Ah, so you did five. Kinda, yeah. but the, the Woodrow Wilson thing wasn't a Moorhead experience. Correct, but I mean, but yeah, like, but I did five summers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I graduated from school, I realized that I wanted to be in banking. But if anyone, if you know about banking, the schedule is very rigid. You know, you interview in October, you start in July. You know, so I landed after my experience in Peru, and I wanted a job, and I was prepared to wait a year, to wait to the fall to then. A, get next summer because the banking experience was so coveted yeah and so i called up chuck lovelace who's direct the d executive director of the moorhead foundation and i said chuck you know i'm i think i want to get into finance so he sent me he emailed me five names i emailed those people like this is like real time my phone rings jim wilmot and morgan stanley managing director was like what's up i said Mr. Wilmot, how are you? Great to hear from you. You know, I'm back in the country. I'm looking for a job. He said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, nothing. Two weeks later, I had a job. Wow. As an analyst at Morgan Stanley. Now, I will tell you that that type of access is, is incredible, but let's be clear. I had a 3.8 GPA. I had an international resume. You know what I mean? Like, Morgan Stanley had every interest in talented people. But I say that like, it, this wasn't like, you know, like this wasn't a backroom deal. Was like, I can't, thing. like, this like, like opportunity, I got the opportunity, but I also came with the heat, correct. you know, which is what I think some of these kids have to understand. Like, understand. it's not the free oop, you know, it's, it's chance favoring the prepared. Yes. And Michelle Obama talks about this, right? Like, oh, you special. And she's like, nah, I'm not that special. And I feel like, there were kids in Brooklyn that I went to school with who were dope, who were super dope. And they may not have gotten the opportunity that I did. And so I think about like, that's growth, right? So, you know, and, and back to Biggie, right? You know, Biggie's talking about building teams, right? He's talking about then and now. He's He's thinking back on, what he used to be, right? So that that's the level, that's the growth that I feel that is evidenced in my life. 
And I have opportunities to thank for that. You know, I have affirmative action to thank for that. I have the Albert G. Oliver program, you know, Mr. Birchfield, others, you know, who've poured into me. But that's the thing, man. You know, you, a lot of these young kids is getting written off. I'm like, how you going to write off a 10 year old? Ain't even got a chance to sprout yet. Exactly. Yeah. So you're an IB. Yeah, man. Did it for three years. Uh, two years um, financial institutions, two years doing equity underwriting, and then a year uh, doing investment grade. So I learned both sides of the balance sheet, or I should say the top and bottom. We all hear that uh, working in investment banking is hell, uh, especially the first two years, if that's as short as it, as it actually is. Your experience, how many hours a week were you working? I hit the desk at 7.30, I probably wake up around six, and I jump in the black car around nine o'clock. Okay, so that's, that's yeah. 14 hours almost, with transit, right? Yeah. Times five, that takes us to 70 hours a week. Yeah, at least. Sounds about right. And then- but It was then, less than the corporate finance cats. Gotcha. They were, just, you know, just, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't not work. So what do you take the most from your uh, Morgan Stanley experience? That I did not want to be a banker. Flat out. I remember they had this gentleman. He was the global galactic head of like, you know, the fanciest title you'd ever heard. Right. And it was like, uh, hey, young analysts, come sit with, you know, the global galactic head of and learn about, you know, how to be amazing. And so he's talking about his career. And, you know, he's like, yo, I'm hot in these streets. And someone concluded with a question like. You know, like something like what would you do differently or something or what do you regret most or something? And the dude almost started choking up about how he missed every softball game, every wrestling match. How His kids don't like him. And I said to myself, I'm not interested in that. I don't want that life. I'm not about that life. But I will say mm-hmm. Morgan Stanley, a world class group of people. And I'm not just saying that just because like oh, cover my bases. Good people, man world-class professionalism and i would say not only did i realize that i didn't want to be a banker but one of the 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 biggest takeaways from morgan stanley that i sort of that took that i took away as a value system was seeing what the people who are the best in the world at what they do what that grind looks like Mm. you know what i'm saying like there's there's levels to this just like you were saying about hodgkiss yes you were exposed to the landscape of what is out there and what yes what it looks like yes and when you are in an investment bank and you see a world-class banker build a business Mm -hmm. then that that you take that with you Mm -hmm. you take that that world-class acumen those standards, that professionalism, that grind with you. And I took that with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where'd you take it? <sighs> I took it to DC. Shout to the Moorhead again. So I, I realized that I wanted to move closer to this utopia of like get rich and get a People's Choice Award, <laughs> you know, a la Magic Johnson. So I wanted to move into real estate investment, which by the way, is the best kept secret when it comes to wealth creation. You know, but coming, being a young person in finance, mm-hmm. you know, gave me an, an entry into the, the asset class. So I did some networking through the Moorhead Foundation. 
Uh, shout out to Latasha Edwards, uh, who I was connected to, who worked at, you know, the investment advisory firm that I work at now. And so in 2006, I moved to D.C. and started as an analyst doing uh, acquisitions and asset management. And prior to this, had you had any exposure to real estate? So it's funny you should ask that because in 2004, I did my first deal. So this is back to the West Indian side hustle. Okay. I did my first deal while as an analyst and I got 100% financing, but everybody did. I actually had a job. You didn't even. You didn't need a job. These are ninja loans. <laughs> no, you're right. It's the no doc. Just hey, just tell me how much. Just, yeah, just 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 to tell me. T- tell, tell me, me you good. love me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Approved. <laughs> you ain't lying though. So so yeah, man. It was crazy because I got a I got a bonus. It was my first bonus. It was thirty thousand dollars. Now I was twenty two years old. I thought first of all I went straight to the club. And I lost my mind. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I said, drinks are on me, people. Y'all don't understand right now. Like, I, that was more money than yeah. like you could ever yeah. imagine. No, seriously. Like, <laughs> like from, from a just a, a, a thought process standpoint, think about it as if like from a denominator, think about it from a percentage standpoint as opposed to a, a raw number standpoint, right? If all you've been exposed to, the most money that's ever been in your bank account has been like... <laughs> Two three thousand dollars at a given time, <laughs> and then someone hands you a check for thirty thousand dollars. You're not thinking about the thirty. You're thinking about the fact that this is ten times as much yeah. as I've ever had in my bank account yeah. in my hand. Yeah. Yo, so wait, you telling me I could spend all the money that was in my bank account and still have it nine more times? Now, I'm not saying that was your experience or anything. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, that's I, that's yeah. I'm saying that in the sense of when people think about. They get these big bonuses and people lose their mind. Um, it's not as irrational as it sounds, but continue. But the re- the reason I mentioned the bonus, mm-hmm. one of the things that I, that I'm interested in is mentorship. I remember I spoke to a group of kids, and I said, "Y'all ask me anything," because these kids need to know. Like these hot boys out here, like you like girls, stay in school. You like nice things, stay in school. And, and I think it's just really important for kids to understand that they just need to know what, what the opportunity cost of being a knucklehead is. Mm-hmm. So you got to talk about the money. Because if you don't tell a kid, like, look, man, when I was 22 years old, I made X, like, then it, it, don't, it, don't, it, don't, register it don't register for them. And But the thing is, nobody likes to talk about money because it's like, oh, you stunting. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, these kids need to know. Because they know a lot about money because they don't have it. So to say 30000 you know, like that resonates. Yeah. So I like to talk to kids about money because we need to talk about money. <laughs> and I like talking about money in general. So back to that story. So I bought my I bought a brownstone in Best Star. All right. 2004. Congratulations. Thank you. And I own it to this day. Double congratulations. I have not missed a rent payment in 14 years. Triple congratulations. Shout to my tenants. And that investment has changed my life. How so? That investment bought me two other houses. Okay. For short. Okay. That, I mean, that's really all you need to know. 
So before we get to the seven questions, yes. Uh, during your time at the firm you're at right now, you took a brief two year break. Yes, went to, to go went, to Cambridge. Went to no, actually, I went to Boston. Ah, touche. <laughs> For those who don't know, what what school are we talking? I about? went to Harvard okay. for my MBA. Cambridge is where the undergraduate campus is, yes, and the is. business school is yes, across is. the river. If it was trivia, I would have gotten it wrong. <laughs> And Harvard was a, an amazing experience. It's probably one of the most, if not the most, you know, maybe one 1A uh, preeminent business schools, graduate business schools in the world. And uh, there's a number of things that from any of these business schools that you get that are go beyond just the education. Uh, there's the network. Uh, there's also the place, if you will, because uh, sometimes people might be living you know, let's say you're living in Sri Lanka by going to, you know, HBS for two years, you get to live in America for a couple of years. And uh, the branded education, the branded education, third and fourth. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I asked him, did he felt that he got something from each of those during his time? He said, yeah. So I said, okay. to rank them. You wanted me to rank. Them. Yes, I want to rank them. So I'll rank them real quick. So the four options, brand, education, network and, and place. Yes. The first quick one I would X out is Boston okay. is the place. <laughs> Be, I mean, because he's a and, Yankees fan, probably, and, and, and partly because in, when you go to HBS, mm-hmm. you're in your your sort of HBS bubble. Gotcha. But Harvard Business School as a place is a fantastic incubator of talent and learning. But that I would say is is part of the sort of education, call it. So, okay. out of brand education and and the network in terms of the value. To me, brand and education are close, number one. Number two, the network is extremely valuable. I would say today for me, my leveraging of that, the value of the network has been less. But I bet in 10 years that the network is going to become number one. But the X factor that I would say is the sense of belonging mm. because when you go to Harvard Business School and Jamie Dimon and Jack Welsh and all of these like iconic business leaders are in class no nobody's going to tell you like no regular dude is going to tell you that you that this deal isn't yours. You know what I mean? Like it's that 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 mentality stays with you and allows you to really take it to the next level because your belief in yourself when that is your environment in the most beautiful setting, the most executive of accommodations it's like it's like the boardroom setting such that you're like yeah i woke up in the boardroom <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> so when you're in the boardroom you're comfortable yeah cuz you've been in the boardroom yeah that i mean that i think maybe even more so than any of this is that that sense of belonging and not being denied and seeing it and it seems like a a, a recurring theme but being it i mean being it yeah being a part of that ecosystem is huge. Yeah. That's the magic. 
So the, the ambition that comes from that. Is it like a confidence? If you will? Yeah, it's confidence for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's just. There's nobody who I feel like I can't reach out to. Period. If I have something of value that makes sense. I'm a, I'm a call Oprah and I'm going to say, Oprah, I have something that I would like to share. That I mean, that's what HBS gives you. In the sense of you or in the sense of if she Googles you, she'll find out that you went to HBS. And no, like, okay. no. In the sense of the audacity to call Oprah. <laughs> like, in the sense of like, who do you think you are? Okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. Hey, man, I'm just telling you. I got you. So, that's probably a good segue for the seven questions, but um, I wanted to still touch on uh, this hospitality uh, pet project of yours. If you want to yeah, talk man. about that for a little bit. Just real quick. So, I, I, I love to host, and I love to delight, and I love art and design, and, and I love real estate investment, and all of those passions are colliding right now for me, and um. Uh, building out a space where I can take hosting to the next level. So I hope to see you there. All right. Ready for seven questions? I am. All right. By the way, I might call Oprah soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being so serious. No, you are. <laughs> What's the call, what? y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions. Wait, it's the questions. It's the questions. Shout out to Common, man. I saw, I saw Common at uh, Wolf Trap. What a show. All right. Book that at the library. Question number one. Easy. Rich dad, poor dad. Rich dad, poor dad. And I would tell you, I would tell you, Rich dad, poor dad was one of the books that changed my life. The way that I think about my financial goals. Full stop. Rich dad, poor dad is in my blood. It's part of the reason why I want to build an asset base. So, yeah, man. And the trilogy was amazing. I've only read the first one. The trilogy is amazing. Um, and I need to follow up. Yeah. I know that. Uh, it keeps getting better. Man. I mean, not better because that, that, you once you get that nugget, uh-huh. you know, when you go zero to 60 from 60 to 80 is less thrilling. Yeah. But but yeah, man, it keeps getting better. Rich Dad, Poor Dad changed my life. Um, <clears throat> my sophomore year in school or going into my sophomore year of school. A friend of mine called me up and he was like, yo, Fred, read this book. It's called Rich Dad Poor Dad. You got to read this, man. <laughs> I was like, all right, man. He's like, no, 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 you need to read this book, man. Shout out to Omari Peeler, straight up. I trust this man's opinion. Uh, and he said, yeah, you need to read this book. And I read that book over that summer and I said, I'm buying real estate. And that's all there is to it. Yep. All right. Number two, podcast to subscribe. Um, how I built this. So, are you familiar with it? Uh, it's an NPR podcast that interviews entrepreneurs on how they built their businesses. What'd you do next? You know, like what'd you do next? Or oh, you left your job, right? So it's so it's about entrepreneurship and investing, which is my a passion of mine. But one of the things I love most about the podcast is is that it exposes the opportunity divide like it like when you hear about 
people that are like, oh, so it's like, it's like, so I raised 300,000. It's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> go back. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, they don't often go back. It's like, you know, so my dad gave me 300 grand. <laughs> or it's like, it's like, I hollered at my dad's people, mm-hmm. you know, or like, I had a, I had a second uncle who was in, and, and, and I think that what it, to me, it exposes the cost of being part of a resource constrained community. True that. It it really does. And I think if 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 nothing else to cause you to think about who you're spending your time with. Can your friends offer anything toward your ambition? Money, advice, a connection, a suggestion. I mean, you know what I mean? And so to 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 hear these entrepreneurs who are shrouded in in like benefit and knowledge and capital, it's like it it it, it causes you to think about what your life is about and who, who you're who you're surrounded with. And you know the interesting part is that you're probably more aware of it than they are. Oh yeah, because there's a lot of privilege there. Yeah, I'm saying. I mean, I'm I'm extraordinarily privileged. And let's be clear, I'm a a black man. I am too. I mean, yes, yes. But I'm saying in the sense of when they just brush over the yeah, I got three hundred thousand (laughs) dollars, they may think that they had more to do with their access to that three hundred thousand dollars than they actually did. Or or they might be focused on the grind, like how they flip that three hundred. Yeah. But like, let's be clear, like Like, you wouldn't flip nothing nothing. (laughs) if you didn't have it. So yeah. Yeah, sometimes people's privilege is 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 not aware. They're not aware of it. And I'm a big, big, big proponent of us all recognizing our privilege because I think a lot of people out there are so focused on their disadvantage that they lose sight of the fact that like, yo, everybody got a hand. Some of our hands is real good. Some of us got all spades. <laughs> But you know what? Everybody got a hand. Yeah. And so it's not like you didn't get a hand. No, nah, you got a hand. You know, what? I see a couple spades in there. You ignoring them, but I see a couple spades. How about this? We're not playing spades. We're playing bid with. Well, that's interesting. Exactly. You may not have a lot of spades, but guess what? You got a bunch of clubs or you got a bunch of hearts. How about you bid around to yeah. make sure that clubs or that hearts is yeah. the trump? Yeah. And then you take all them books. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that there is a way of thinking where there's a certain level of creativity out of the box thinking, a rejection of the of the status quo and an ability to sort of conceptualize your advantage that may not be so apparent to you. And I have concrete ideas around that, but we'll say that for the next podcast. Number three, something you didn't know that you needed until you got it. Ethics training. Ooh, this is like so real talk because when you are a private equity investor, mm-hmm. there's a million and one shortcuts that you can take. And I will tell you that having a framework for doing the right thing and staying out of jail is very valuable. You think? Because I but I say that to say that like like it's it's not always like, oh, I stole some money. 
It is the incremental erosion of judgment. So there's a saying that we used to have in business school. And the, in the, in the saying was, how do you boil a frog? Well, here's how you don't boil a frog. <laughs> okay. How you don't boil a frog is throw a frog in the boiling water. Why? Because they're going to jump right out. Because the frog jumps right out. Yeah. So what you do is you turn the water up slowly. And when you're a private equity investor, it's that slow boil that you have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. And you may not even realize that the room is getting hot before you're boiling. And ethics training helps you identify when the room goes from lukewarm to a couple degrees higher. Yeah. And it gives you a framework to keep your ass out of jail. I'm dead serious about that. I believe you. There's a test called the Wall Street Journal test, right? Which is, if this behavior was exposed on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, would you be so good about it? And so one of the things you learn in ethics training and governance is that it is not just about the conflict. It is also about the appearance of a conflict. Mm. Because optics matter. Yeah. That, 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 is a, that is the framework that ethics and governance training gives you. And just keeps you out of trouble, man. Yeah. Uh, number four, a bucket list place to travel. Place in the world that you have been to that you'd recommend listeners add to their bucket list. So two days ago, actually yesterday, I, I got back from Belize. I have a, a spring break tradition with my son. Shout out to Quentin. He's 11. Shout out to Quentin. And um, we went to Belize. Father, son, look. And I'm embarrassed to say that I did not know Belize was a West Indian culture. Yeah. In Latin America. Correct. It, like Guyana, is an English-speaking West Indian culture in Latin America. In Central America, yep. What city yeah. did you go to? So we went to San Pedro, which was an, you know, an island off the coast of Belize. So we flew into Belize City, shot over a 15-minute plane ride to San Pedro. We stayed at the Grand Caribe. And we basically took advantage of some plug-and-play expeditions, um, you know, zip lining, rainforests. We had a private fishing tour. So, man, it's, it's great. You know, it was, a, it was a great time to rest. You know, the older I get, the less interested I am in the club. And I will tell you, sometimes I go out with my friends and they want to tear the club up. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So being there with my little man and sleeping well, eating well, bonding with him uh, in this beautiful setting with black people Mm -hmm. who remind me of my family. It was super dope, man. Number five, 50-mile detour restaurant. You're within 50 miles of this restaurant. It makes sense for you to detour off your intended path to travel. So I reject the premise of this question. Why is that? (laughs) I mean, you know, I like good food, but I don't know. You know, like I I listen to your best of, and I I remember that there were some people who were like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Like I wouldn't detour 50 miles. I'm kind of in that camp. So I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip it. All right. And I'm going to say... Uh, the best round away joint and it's gotta be Royal. I went there today. Royal y'all is on fifth and Florida. The food's exceptional. 
The vibe is dope. They don't have wait service. You have to order, you know, from the bar and go sit down. It's a it's an exceptional neighborhood look, and I love it. Everything is just exquisitely done. It's far better and greener than a fifty mile detour, Fred. Okay. Beer menu's fantastic. It's just a great vibe. Right. Number one skill, number six. This is your number one honed craft. Okay, so so I'm gonna ask that we come back to this one. Okay. For for a very specific reason. Like come back to it this episode. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so yeah. then so let number seven. <laughs> yeah, so the number one talent was that. Okay. So number one talent. Mm-hmm. So my number one talent, and again, this is like leadership training. Okay. Like what the books would tell you, but I also agree. Mm-hmm. Is connecting with people. So the strengths finder will describes it as a wooer. So I'm the dude that the first time you meet, like it's like we're long lost siblings. Okay. Like that's my that's the experience that I give people. And you haven't had to work at that. That's just been naturally throughout your life. <sighs> yeah, man. I mean, I'm just like I'm very open. Mm-hmm. I'm very informal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like there's no you know the pensiveness that you have to work through when you first meet someone. The vibe I give folks is like, yo, we've been rocking for years because I have a level of comfort in my skin. So it makes people very, and I usually say stupid that makes people even more comfortable. Like, oh, this dude's clowning. So he's, he's, you know, saying stupider things than I am. Like, so there's the no judgment zone vibe. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And people just get comfortable. Okay. And it allows and it allows a connection. All right. So then number six, what have you had to work at? Okay, so the reason I, I wanted to come back to this was because I remember when I asked one of my mentors, and I think there was a time when I, like other people, was dealing with my knowledge of certain strengths and weaknesses. And focusing on those weaknesses and thinking about them as liabilities and wondering about how I should address these liabilities and asking a mentor of mine, shout to Greg Shell, whether I should coming out of business school work to shore up some of these weaknesses so that they wouldn't be liabilities or whether I should not focus on the weaknesses. Okay. And his and his and his advice was play to your strengths. Play to your strengths. And it's such an important idea for people. And the reason why I say this is because it should be that your natural talent and the skills you hone are a reflection of your talents because you should be playing to your strengths, which is why I wanted to come back to the skills. So, for example, if you are a natural people person, the skill that you should be thinking about developing is like communication, mm-hmm. right? So that's just my little jewel that occurred to me okay. is is to share with people because I'm always trying to offer some insight. So your number one skill would be connecting with people. It, 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 honestly, it's it's like sales. Sales, okay. It's It's sales as an extension of my strength of building trust and connecting with people. All right. For sure. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been yet another edition of Guestbook Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You got any social media? Any websites? Uh, Email. My social media is uh, so whack. That you want to share with the listeners at home? At Larry Realistar. Okay. This is on what? 
Insta. Okay. I've got seven posts. I hate social media. You know why? Why is that? Because there is this constant obsession with advertising your fake life, and I don't want any part of it. But my life is actually dope. <laughs> like in real life. <laughs> I'm trying to play the play the cut. Like kinda, not kinda. If you feel me, <laughs> there's nothing about me that says play the cut. But in many ways, I'm thoughtful about my footprint. Thank you for having me. I love what you're doing, brother. This is innovative. Thank you, much. And uh, yeah, man, there's a lot of work to do, as you know. It's uh, the same podcast we were talking about the 50 Mile Detour restaurant. I talked about the slow steps in the big picture. Mm-hmm. He's grinding it out. Yeah. So. See you at the top, brother. See you at the top. As always, you're going to reach out to me, innkeeper at unionndc.com. The suffix of that is, of course, the website. And I'm on Instagram as well at Union in DC at Guestbook Pod for the podcast. And for myself, you want to slide into my DMs at Innkeeper Freddy for the idea. And Holly, thank you so much for to the end coming on the podcast. Holly, we gonna get you on here? <laughs> Soon. Soon. Ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. I just want to talk about Halle real quick. Go ahead, man. So Halle, Halle is my dear friend. I always say Halle granted me asylum when I was a refugee. So when I was building my home and my contractor lied to me and said it would take six months, I said, I reached out to the to the group text. Halle, Halle offered to take me in. And Halle is, he's a gentleman and a scholar. He is a true loyal friend. He is a kind-hearted, beautiful-spirited man. And and in such a short time, I really count this dude as one of my best friends, one of my inner circle people, and I love this brother. That's what's up. He's also a five-star chef too, right? Yo, how they cook his ass off. <laughs> I'm like, yo. No I sent pictures of the girl I was dating at the time. She's like, I'm coming through. I'm like, that was the point. How <laughs> <laughs> they cooked. She want to come through. <laughs>
Send him a joint on Amazon. Send him a text, man. Send him a text. Uh, you know? Nah, but all good. No, it's a really good shaving system. So, by all means, give it a give it a look. 